1: Welcome to another edition of 1111 Talk Radio. I'm thrilled to have you and especially excited about today's show, not only because I have a returning guest whose work I absolutely love, but because in reading his latest book, it has touched a place inside of me that uh, I so rarely get to connect with in other individuals uh, when we can find ourselves Within a story, within the places that someone else has walked, within the humanity and the divinity of another individual, all of a sudden, that too is a step of home on our journey. And this show is very much about finding home in all of the ways that life brings us to it. So I'm looking forward to this very rich and beautiful conversation with Steve Kanji Rule that we'll get started with in just a couple of seconds. I want to mention that the first two books of my new trilogy are out, and if you haven't gotten them, I invite you to partake of them. These are not typical books that will be read back-to-back. They can be used as oracles, or you should very slowly take your time through them. They were written as if the soul had created manuals for you to move through in being human in supporting you in realizing any and everything that you might encounter in that walk, but also deepening into your multidimensional nature as you do so. Each book is an aspect of your multidimensional nature. And the first book is Living, The Seven Human Blessings of Experience, and the second book is Being, The Seven Illusions That Derail Personal Power, Purpose, and Peace. Both of these books are out now. You can click on the link at the top of the show page or go to my website. And the third book, Knowing, The Seven Human Expressions of Grace, will release in February of 2023. Now, on to the good stuff. The authentic journey always cuts its trail inward. Details of outward travels must differ vastly, but inner journeys, the numinous ones, the sacred adventures, remain universally the same. A solo plunge into chasms, a herald struggle, the emergence into brightness and renewal. A journey to find unique truths not only requires seeking the great jewel of the soul, as mystics call it, you also must confront the stench of everything that shames you, And that scares you. This is from Steve Kanji Rule's latest book, Appalachian Zen Journeys in Search of True Home from the American Heartland to the Buddha Dharma. It is a rich and beautiful book and has so many wonderful uh, insights and touch points that you will encounter as you move through it. Steve Kanji Rule is ordained as a Zen Buddhist minister through the Zen Peacemaker Order. He's the author of Enlightened Contemporaries, which you can also hear an interview on that in our archives, and two volumes of poems, The Constant Yes of Things and Paintings of Rice Cakes, Satisfy Hunger. He received his Master of Divinity degree from Harvard University and has been a speaker at Harvard Center for World Religions, Yale Divinity School, the Omega Institute, and elsewhere. A Buddhist advisor at Yale University and a faculty member of the Shigoku Sense Institute, Rule also teaches independently through his Touch the Earth Cyber Sangha. He lives in Western Massachusetts, and you can find out more at SteveKanjiRule.com, which is also in his bio description on the show page. Welcome, Kanji. It's so nice to have you back on the show again.
2: Oh, uh, it's wonderful to be back here with you, Simran. Thank you so much. And thank you for such a generous and kind introduction. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, absolutely. I have always been devoted to the journey of the soul. And I think I was born seeking home and have have had my own journey, uh, different from yours. but But so much of what you wrote resonated so deeply. And uh, touched my heart in a way that was, was truly profound. This, there is no wonder that this book has been nominated for the Best Spiritual Memoir of 2022 by Om Times Magazine. Uh, it is definitely one that I urge everyone to pick up and read. Uh, there's a lot in here to to garner wisdom from, from oneself. I want to start off talking about home, uh, because I think that on some level, all of us, are seeking that home, we might do it looking externally or or going after other things. But ultimately, I think that's what each and every human is trying to uh, remember, recollect, and return to. Talk a little bit about what home is, what true home is, in your opinion, from the beginning of your journey, what you thought it was, and where you are now, what you feel like it is.
2: Oh, certainly, yes. And I agree with you, Simran. I, I think that it is a universal archetypal journey, the seeking of true home, which is why I hope that the book speaks not only to my own personal experience, but resonates with others. And I'm, I'm glad it resonated with you. Um, my journey in terms of seeking true home, and I define true home as rediscovering or reclaiming our original nature, as we call it in Buddhism, but that's our original wholeness. It's the original wholeness that we're each born with. Uh, true home is, is our birthright, and so it's within us. And when we are able to find the true home within ourselves, then we realize that we're always home, no matter what challenges life brings to us. And that's profoundly grounding. So, in terms of your question, originally, when I was embarking on this quest in a way that was very amorphous and, and murky and kind of confused, it really involved a literal return to the place of my birth in, in the central Appalachian region of Pennsylvania. And, I wrote this book, Appalachian Zen, over a period of 30 years from 1992 to 2022, and I wrote it intermittently in the midst of other projects and while working full-time 40-hour week jobs, finding time in the evenings or on the weekends to, to devote to the book. And really all of my books i think the poetry books you mentioned um the enlightened contemporaries book about francis of assisi and Dogen and rumi that we talked about once before and this book appalachian zen as well as a wellness memoir that i'm working on now it all comprises one large integrated body of work and much of the spiritual life much of the mystical experience of no self as you know, is ineffable. It's beyond words. And so as someone who works with words, what I communicate in writing is often self-expression, the revelations of selfhood, um, that part of the spiritual journey, which very much involves, I think, seeking true home. So at the beginning, in 1992, when I was going back, to my literal home in central Pennsylvania's Appalachian Mountain region, uh, a region of farms and factories. And I was going back from my 20th high school reunion at that point. Um, I was thinking about what it means to have reunion, to reunify. And what what was it that I was seeking to reunify? And I began to realize that part of what was implicit in this seeking of the true home was this healing the healing journey, and it involved connecting with ancestors, uh, this intergenerational trauma, this epigenetic trauma that we can carry through sometimes without realizing it. Uh, I'm from seven generations of uh, Pennsylvanians, uh, indentured servants, farmers, soldiers, factory workers, very much a working class background. and. My mother was raised at the end of the Depression in a remote backwoods farm in the mountains uh, with a violent hillbilly moonshiner stepfather. My father was raised in the Depression in dire poverty, the youngest of 11 children, um, three of whom didn't survive childhood, and his father died when he was five, And his mother, who was wonderful, raised those kids uh, in extreme hardship. And then my father, after high school, went into ferocious combat in the South Pacific in World War II. So this kind of trauma of the ancestors within this this landscape of central Pennsylvania's Appalachian Mountains, of enormous pastoral beauty. So all of the, the redemptive quality and the healing power of the natural world i began to think about what it is to come back home to that in the literal sense but also to come home in a spiritual sense and i realized in, it involves healing that trauma of violence and loss and it involves bridging the separation of self and other that separation i had experienced so for so long in my life of me and them or um, this self and other, as I say in the book, there were very difficult experiences in my adolescence. Uh, when I was in high school, I, after I left my original uh, experiences of being in sports and so on, in the late 60s and early 70s, I was very much involved in the hippie counterculture and had long shoulder length hair and was very outspoken about the Vietnam War and where I grew up was extremely conservative. And so there wasn't a a hospitable surrounding for who I was, except in my home. I was blessed to have extremely supportive parents who gave me unconditional love. So bridging that separation of self and other to reach the true home, to have that reunification, And bridging the two worlds of my working class world and then the world I inhabit now, which you alluded to in the introduction, which is a world of um, culturally elite institutions, Deerfield Academy, Yale University, Harvard University, and finding a middle way, a middle path between those two worlds. And so... Coming to the true home, I started to realize involved forgiveness, the spiritual path of forgiveness, and uh, realizing that the people who hurt me, for specifically um, football players in high school who would ambush me in the halls and so on and who would hit me uh, at a time when I thought that I was a pacifist but was actually choking down a lot of, a lot of anger, um, they were hurt themselves. And coming to that realization through open heart and through empathy, and re- being able to reclaim them as my people uh, was profoundly healing. And then also coming to true home through um, mapping the mystical death of the self onto a discussion of suicide, which which I do in the book as well. Um, one of my high school mentors, Bruce Bechtel apparently committed suicide. Um, He's featured in the book Fun Home, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. Uh, Very close friend of mine, Joanne, committed suicide. And then my beloved younger sister committed suicide. So these these traumas uh, and the healing that comes through an experience of shattering grief coming through that dark night of the soul. All of this was implicated for me in moving from um, my original understanding of home in 1992 to where I am at the end of the book 30 years later in 2022. Uh,
1: there's there's so much that you said in there that I'd love to dive into. And, and within the book, you have a line that you repeat several times, which is, uh, by the Japanese Zen poet Basho, which is every day is a journey and the journey itself is home. And that that really is such a beautiful statement because it is our entire journey. And the fact that you wrote this book over you know three decades, it is our entire life that makes up the full tapestry of this journey home. And to get to a deeper understanding of self, it's not going to happen in that instant one aha moment. Um, that so often is purported in spirituality as as these awakenings, but it is this ongoing trek through the mountain. Um, I, I loved a story in there where you talked about getting to the peak of a mountain and then realizing that you were not still at the peak, you still had to go further. And that's oftentimes what our movement through life is, through the different challenges and obstacles and struggles and traumas that we do encounter. As you look at uh, well first, I'd like to say, just for people to understand the distinction, um, is there a distinction between Zen Buddhism and traditional buddhism what and what would that be
2: mm. yeah, that's a great question, Simran, because there tend to be a lot of misconceptions about that, so to give a very quick and I hope succinct overview to a question that we could. <laughs> kind of spend the rest of the interview on. Um, and not to rush you, but we have two minutes to break. So. <laughs> okay, so I will, <laughs> I, will, I will be keeping an eye on the clock here. Um, so very quickly, Zen Buddhism uh, derives originally from what's called Chan Buddhism in China. And uh, when Indian Mahayana Buddhism moved to China, it went through a profound transformation And so the words chan and zen mean meditation, they derive from the Sanskrit word jhana meaning meditation. So most simply put, uh, chan and zen are the practices within Buddhism that focus on meditation as the very heart of the practice. Not all Buddhisms focus on meditation, but chan and zen Buddhism do. That's the quickest way to answer the question since we're heading toward break.
1: Beautiful. How to pacify memory, how to honor the past, yet be free of it. If anyone had hinted that venerable rites of Zen might prove beneficial, I'd have balked. Zen Buddhism? That's so pointless, so passionless, so colorless, so nihilistic and grim, so alien. Sit on a cushion and stare blankly at a wall? You must be joking. Years after my journey to Pennsylvania, I discovered these sentences by the great 12th century teacher of Sean, the Chinese precursor of Zen, named Wan Wu. It is like coming across a light in thick darkness. It is like receiving treasure in poverty. You gain an illuminating insight into the very nature of things. Here is shown bare the most beautiful landscape of your birthplace. This is from Steve Rule's book, Appalachian Zen Journeys in Search of the True Home, From the American Heartland to the Buddha Dharma. This is from a book that is nominated for the best spiritual memoir of 2022 by Om Times magazine. Uh, definitely pick up your copy and you can find out more about kanji at stevekanjirule.com. That's steve kanji k a n j i rule r u h l.com. We'll be right back with more of kanji and Appalachian zen right after these messages.
3: Let it be simple, convenient, and transformative. The time is now. Step through the 1111 gateway. Courses.1111mag.com It's your world. Motivate. Change.
0: Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
1: Before I get back to the luminous memoir that is Appalachian Zen by Steve Kanji Rule, I want to mention that 1111 Talk Radio is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And we have a special offer for 1111 Talk Radio listeners. BetterHelp wants to give you 10% off your first month. All you have to do is go to BetterHelp.com forward slash 11 and spell out the word 11. Unfortunately, life does not come with a user manual, so when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. Navigating any of life's challenges can sometimes make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or becoming a parent. The BetterHelp team has therapists trained to help you figure out the cause, challenging, uh, creating challenging emotions, and learning productive coping skills which make therapy the closest thing to guided tour of the complex engine called you. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, has connected over 3 million people with licensed therapists. It's convenient and accessible anywhere and 100% online. Again, you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash 11. No waiting rooms, no traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new one. It could not be simpler. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Again, go to betterhelp.com forward slash 11 and get 10% off your first month. The Luminous Memoir combines the hardscrabble settings of Appalachia with the spiritual wisdom of Steve Kanji Rule. In Journeys in Search of the True Home from the American Heartland to the Buddha Dharma, Appalachian Zen is definitely one of those memoirs that models to you what it looks like to do the work, to go back over your life, and to realize how all the dots connect. Kanji trains Zen students to be clear, be kind, be present through koan practice, precepts, work, and meditation practice offered through his Touch the Earth online Sangha and through the Shigaku. Zen Institute. He also offers one on one spiritual counseling for individuals looking to deepen their spiritual lives. A core faculty member for Yale Buddhist, Buddhist Life at Yale University and the Buddhist Spiritual Life Advisor at Deerfield Academy, as well as a former core faculty member in the Spiritual Guidance Program at the Rowe Center, Kanji has supported many people through difficult times in their lives definitely pick up your copy of Appalachian Zen. Uh, You might want to also order his other book that was really beautiful, which was titled Enlightened Contemporaries while you're in the process. You can find out more at stevekanjirule.com. One of the things that is incredibly beautiful about this book, Kanji, is the modeling that takes place in really being with the types of issues that come up, whether it is the trauma Uh, the intense grief, um, dealing with the things that we don't necessarily want to face or want to go back to, and yet showing the necessity and the importance of doing so. I think that grief for myself over the the past decade has been an incredible portal, uh, one that has shown me the subtleties of life and things that I don't know that I would have discovered in any other kind of way. And it seems with all of the different um, individuals that have passed through your life that have had you encounter these doorways of grief, that you too, through that and sitting, have received a view of life, of people, of humanity, of self, that often goes unnoticed when we stay too busy, when we stay too caught up in this external world and what we think the world is going to fill us up with. As you moved through your stages of grief uh, and also a, a recent illness that you are now 100% healthy from, tell me about the impact or the, the process of grief and how that supported you in uh, staying true to your path and staying true to, to finding home and, and being in a place of joy and peace.
2: Mm, Such a wonderful question, Simran. And obviously, as you said, you do know yourself from your own experiences of grief in your life, that it can be either crushing or it can be eventually transporting to a new realization of of peace and joy. Um, Joy, of course, distinguished from happiness. Uh, Happiness is, is conditional. Joy is unconditional. So for myself, the process that's described in the book through grieving, healing from losses, healing from traumas, is one in which the the shattering experience of grief, whether it was the suicide of my friend Joanne, the suicide of my sister, uh, various losses and traumas described in the book, those experiences were... Devastating emotionally and involved a complete disruption of connection to the routine, mundane world, and forced me to go into an underworld of darkness that also involved. this disillusion of uh, dissolution of the of the ego self and it's that that crumbling of the small ego self under duress that really creates a a new spaciousness if we're able to recognize it for entering into another vaster realization of, of who we are and and what we're capable of. And so when the small constricted self is broken open by grieving, it creates an opening for a heart space. And as the heart begins to open more and more, there's a realization that the suffering that we're undergoing individually is also a universal suffering. Everybody experiences these kinds of grief. And in our culture, much of the emphasis is placed on trying to escape from that in any way possible, Uh, finding escape through some kind of addictive behavior or through some kind of drug or through anything that numbs us and prevents us from going into that darkness and that, that dark night of the soul. But if we're able to stay in that place and not numb ourselves and not run away from it and not try to escape from it, then the potential exists to really come to a rebirth into a new life, a transformed life of fearlessness and resilience and new learning and this open hearted spaciousness that really is love. It's spiritual love, and that love, of course, is what is always at the source of the mystical path.
1: In the book Appalachian Zen, you write, In Zen we describe the emancipating dropping away of the small self as the great death. This death of the little me, with its inane chatter and obsessions, reveals the sublime original nature, the Buddha in each of us that opens to everything in the 10,000 directions, to the whirling infinitude of quarks and nebulae. The Staggering, Inexhaustible Splendor of the Cosmos. The Great Death Allows New Life. I loved that paragraph. And yet, I I, I think the reason this, again, this book resonates so much is because I find that you reach these places by sitting, by being present, by allowing yourself prolonged uh, time to really be with everything that is your life and not escape it. As you say, and yet that's often the most difficult thing for individuals to do, to sit and be present to what is in front of them, to what is their life. Talk a little bit about the discipline required and how those individuals that are either choosing the Zen path or choosing a path where they really do face life and face every emotion, and every trauma is the type of thing where you're you're really embracing uh, everything that could be painful, but yet you're shattering almost a glass house that is there and finding the
2: truth. Mm. Yeah, that's so well said, uh, Simran. I think that for anybody who is engaging this kind of grieving, and of course it goes without saying that, they don't have to be pursuing explicitly a Zen path. There are all kinds of spiritual paths and all kinds of ways to do this. But to not flinch from it, to realize that staying with it, staying present, as hard as that is, as scary as it is, as overwhelming as it is, is really the way that you're going to be able to come through this um, by accessing your true home. As we were saying at the outset of our conversation, the true home is within you. The true home is the place of your true, authentic grounding, and it's always with you. And again, often in our culture, we lose sight of that. We lose sight of our original wholeness, our original nature. But that's that coming back to the true home is the gift that we receive when we're able to stay present with the grieving, with the trauma, not escape from it as long as it takes. And that process is one of building the the resilience, building the fearlessness. It may, <clears throat> excuse me, it may not be with you at the beginning, but it's the the will to stay with it that actually starts to build the capacity to be with it. And then with time, at least speaking from my own experience, and maybe this is true of your experience as well, with time, you begin to realize that what you're emerging into is something that you always had with you, which is this true home of your original peace and equanimity and joy. And it's getting back to that place of equanimity that allows you to withstand these profound losses and these traumas and the grieving that go with them.
1: Within Appalachian Zen, you say, a spiritual practice founded on improbability and paradox, a practice demanding quiet, unremarkable daily heroism, Selfless heroism, existential heroism, taking full responsibility for life. This heroism means persevering with sincerity and with determination, even if effort seems futile. The four great vows, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. Very, very powerful words when one sits like that, or when one commits to that degree, oftentimes the mind chatter can come up that we are weak or we are too much of a pacifist or the external world if it's if it's something that's going on that uh, warrants uh, activism, so so to speak, in our external world, yet we sit back and and become more of a pacifist in the way that you did. I loved how you wrote about the therapist saying that that pacifism is also strength that you stood up, you stood strong each and every time. And I want to get your opinion on where our world is right now. And you do go into things like the insurrection or, or different things that have happened in our country later in the book and how that also inspired some of this. And yet so often when those things happen, it makes people want to act even more. And yet sometimes standing strong, but being the pacifist can be even more powerful. Talk a a little bit about your viewpoints on that.
2: Mm. It's such an interesting dynamic, isn't it? I think that the path of personal transformation that I endeavor to describe in the book corresponds to a path of transforming human consciousness for planetary healing. I think that happens through forgiveness and through an open heart. And I think as I read it and understand it right now, looking at the situation in our current world, there is a collapse of what I refer to as the death cult of the secular materialist world and that's a world that has bred tremendous violence through patriarchy and through racism and through all of the various uh, corruptions that we're familiar with and it's it's a difficult collapse to be living through but at the same time there's a concurrent transformation of human consciousness taking place. And we can see that all around us as well if we're attentive to it. And so as this is happening, I think for myself, I'm taking a position of staying in that place of strength and cultivating the the original home, the true home, and trying to do that in a way that doesn't foster the kind of polarizing and the kind of uh, separating into uh, opposing political camps that we see that's so pervasive right now. And that was part of the healing journey for me, too, coming through this process of getting to a place of of no opposition, of realizing that there are very difficult challenges to be faced right now and that we do need to do that. But we can come to it from a place of open heart and no opposition. This is something I learned uh, when I was working on the Enlightened Contemporaries book, uh, I learned it from Francis of Assisi. He was very concerned about the corruption of uh, the institutions that he was living with in the 13th century, but he opposed no one. He was proceeding from love, and that ultimately, I think, is the gift of this this process of coming through. These Dark Nights of the Soul.
1: My Uh, guest today is Steve Rule, and he has written Appalachian Zen. It is a beautiful memoir that reads much like a novel. It is definitely something you want to pick up and move through. You will be amazed and awed by all that he has experienced, and yet also by his spiritual journey in going home, in finding true home, and in discovering places of joy and peace amidst all that he encountered. You can find out more at steveconjewool.com. We'll be right back after these messages.
3: Do you want more, more joy, more abundance, more power and presence? How would it feel to have more loving relationships, more empowered community greater fulfillment and life purpose the 1111 mastermind community inspires empowers guides and supports transformation shift your mind expand your heart deepen insights let go and chart a new course dream a new dream the 1111 mastermind community is an online portal for personal transformation and soulful expansion Go to courses.1111mag.com. That's courses.1111mag.com. Change begins with you. Let it be simple, convenient, and transformative. The time is now. Step through the 1111 gateway. Courses.1111mag.com. Have you seen
0: 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11 22 33 444 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at IamSimran.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio.
1: My guest is Steve Kanji Rule, and we are talking about his latest book, Appalachian Zen Describes a Journey We All Take, one that Buddhism calls Seeking Our True Home. Edgy, lyrical, and lovingly rendered, this book recounts how a kid from a Pennsylvania mill town trailer park grew up surrounded by backwood farms and amid grief, violence, and passionate yearning to become something improbable, a Buddhist minister teaching Zen. Author Steve Kanji takes readers on an adventure of discovery, raving from the far from the Appalachian Mountains of central Pennsylvania on a footloose pilgrimage to Japan and beyond, featuring vivid firsthand accounts of spiritual seeking and teachings in Japanese temples, as well as forays to Tokyo and Hiroshima. The alleys of Kyoto, Amish cornfields near the Susquehanna, and a monastery in the Catskills. Appalachian Zen includes robust historical sketches, rapt nature passages, and cultural references ranging from Proust to punk rock. It is definitely a beautiful book you want to pick up this season, and you can go to stevekanjirule.com to find out more about him and all of the things that he does. You may be like Kanji was In the beginning, you may ask these questions. Why would I want to meditate? Why would I want to sit? I'd scoff during rare moments when the subject of Eastern religion arose in conversations. Why would I just want to be a zombie? I'm not interested in serenity. I want passion. I want to ride the roller coaster. I want to feel deeply. I want to suffer and rejoice. That's what it means to be an artist. That's what it means to be alive. If I just want to sit and be empty, I can get a lobotomy. Uh, that, as often happens with Zen, the lessons would arrive soon—lessons in ephemera, in dissolution and loss; lessons in the blind despotism of the self; lessons in curating effects of wanting, of wanting someone, her voice, her body; lessons in wanting someone like air, when a strangler's fingers shut the throat; lessons in the anguish of desire. This is from the book Appalachian Zen by Steve Kanji Rule, nominated for Best Spiritual Memoir of 2022 by Om Times Magazine. Congratulations on that, Kanji. Uh,
2: thanks, Emma.
1: Oftentimes what gets us uh, on our knees or gets us to the place of questioning or looking for something is going to be heartbreak or loss. Something of that effect is usually what triggers those moments of seeking and searching uh, the dysfunction in our lives, when things are not working. And when that happens, there's a sense of of desperate openness that sometimes we have, but yet even that serves us. And I think that that's something that's very critical to mention about this book, I know about my own life, that even the difficult, even the challenging, that all the things that take place within our lives it really is not about those individual moments because we're to use those moments to, to be the soil in which to grow, to, to nurture the longing, to nurture the way home, to, to find the path. Talk a little bit about how you see life and many of the tragic things, that, and, and you've certainly encountered you know quite a few in your own life, but many of the tragic things that people face and are in question about, how do you suggest that they uh, view these things and move forward to not get stuck right in a specific spot?
2: Mm. Yeah, and I, I agree with you that when we are driven to our knees by heartbreak, that there is a possibility for opening. And for myself, when I look at the experiences of t- tragic loss and trauma in retrospect, I can see clearly that they were they were opening possibilities for me that were not necessarily clear at the time, but that in hindsight, I have no regrets about, as, as hard as it was. And I don't mean to say that in a glib way, that there was no challenge involved, because there certainly was. But I am grateful for the experiences. Every experience that I recount in the book, I now feel gratitude for, because they gave me the gifts of resilience or fearlessness or being able to tap into strengths that I didn't know I had. And coming back from these places of of profound suffering to a place of of newfound vitality. And after my sister Sherry committed suicide uh, for a long time, I thought of myself as dead man walking, taking the title from that that book and that film. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought of myself as dead man walking. To come from that place of having died and then being reborn into a new mission in life. and I think to answer your question, a lot of it has to do with learning to trust life. Learning to trust life, learning to accept that what has happened is something that has been a gift that you can be grateful for. And ultimately, learning to trust the life force. And that's what uh, the path has been for me since getting a cancer diagnosis five years ago, which you alluded to during the introduction. Um, That's been a path for me of really confronting life and death every day and learning to completely dedicate myself. To the life force, and that connects as well. I think to the earlier question that we were talking about in regard to action in the world, because so much of my action in the world now, <clears throat> excuse me, is about, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, dedicating to the life force in the midst of a lot of death energy that's running amok. Um, not that death in itself is the problem, of course, death is a natural process, but there's so much of this death cult energy in our culture, uh, ranging from school shootings to you know the horrible shooting that happened at um, the gay club in Colorado recently, and uh, the global climate change that's happening from a very violent disconnection from the natural world and of course we could go on and on but this, this death energy that's running amok and committing to the life force I think is also a matter of learning to trust life and to seeing as I'm saying in retrospect that the difficulties and the sufferings that we encounter as brutal as they are at the time can actually give us these kinds of teachings and, and you've described that so well yourself.
1: Uh, in the book, you talk about, uh, there's a, a passage, uh, to sit on the zafu means sitting in flames. It means sitting alone through a creeping half hour, then another in silence, the silence of the fl- of the fire. It resembles the glassmaker's arduous craft. The self is coarse and opaque like sand. Through years of Zazen, this self, this rough silica, heats to molten glow and then cools, heats again, until it finally transforms. So finally it becomes glass, strong, flexible, shatterproof glass. People unfamiliar with Zen think the practice is meant to create tranquility. What it creates is transparency. That's a beautiful, beautiful passage and powerful. But yet you also share that our most tenacious addiction is the concept of self. And later in the book you talk about self as enemy. When there is no self, there is no enemy. And those are things that oftentimes... Uh, might be taken in intellectually, but they become an embodied knowing when you really do let yourself be with life and trust in life in the way that you just said.
2: Well, it is embodied, absolutely. It's embodied at the cellular level. It's not abstract. It's not intellectual. And that's one of the gifts of this kind of suffering, too, is to give you this embodied experience and of course, if we don't go through these traumas in a way that brings clarity, the the pain of, of those experiences can stay in, in the cellular body and lead to disease. But if we're able to have these cathartic experiences of moving through, moving through, moving through and not allowing blockages and obscurations to, to, um, dam up that energy, then healing can occur. And a lot of that healing does, in my experience, again, have to do with, with completely committing to and channeling life force energy.
1: In talking about that life force energy, and also the way that you referenced kind of this death culture that we've got going on with all of the the shootings and the different things that are taking place in addition to the rise in suicide. uh, Within that section, you say that your mission is to attain primal joy, the clarity and fearlessness of undaunted jubilation by dissolving gradually those obstructions of the ego. It may take years, but Zen adepts have shared this mission for 25 centuries all the way back to the first Zen ancestor and beyond. You say my healing mission to perform what I now call the controlled suicide of Zen, my healing mission is to kill myself, to kill the small, petty, grasping self by allowing it to diminish, therefore opening to all that is, which exists right here always, our true home. And when you look at that broader picture that you spoke of earlier, that collective picture, it's, it's as if this is part of the responsibility that we all must shoulder in terms of really looking at the self, looking at the ego and allowing that to dissolve because we can never really have unity until we can, at least for moments, separate from this self that we keep wanting to identify identify with. What would you like to bring forward in regard to uh, expanding on that concept of the uh, controlled suicide of Zen, the mission to kill the petty self?
2: Yes, and I think this is so important because the human race is in the process right now of committing collective suicide, and as I said earlier, there's also a counterforce of transformation of human consciousness, and that I think is is profoundly encouraging, but we can't ignore the fact... That through nuclear weapons, through the global climate apocalypse that's now at hand, and through uh, the this this death energy that secular materialist culture has committed to and helps to cultivate, the human race is committing collective suicide. So, it's vitally important now, perhaps more so than ever, to realize that so much of what's at the root of of this collective suicide that's not only affecting humanity, but obviously um, all life on Earth, because humans are poised to take everything down with us. Um, Although, as I say, my faith is in the life force, so I'm putting my faith in that transformation of planetary human consciousness. But nevertheless, the, the fundamental source of the disconnection is this addictive, to this exclusive addiction to the sense of of self that narcissistic self-involvement which uh, buddhism claims is at the source of suffering the first noble truth is is life is suffering the source of that is selfish craving self-centered craving so the the meditation experience whether it's in in Zen or any other Buddhism or in any other mystical tradition, uh, whether it's contemplative prayer, whether whatever it might be, that place of going back to the true home, the original wholeness that's within ourselves, getting back to that place. In our culture, which is a consumerist, uh, capitalistic culture where everything is commodified, even meditation… Is is turned into a consumer product, and mm-hmm. it's it's considered to be um, something that's used for relaxation. And it can be, it can be used for that. But much more deeply, it's getting to this this place of of clarity, and this place of being able to see that the small self does have its function it has an executive function within the the psyche and we need that it's not evil but it we need to learn how to let it subside how to let it set aside so that we can have the experience of no self the experience of no self is the experience of pure awareness of getting back to that original wholeness so that we are completely present with whatever is occurring and that can be so. I'm going to
1: have to cut us off here, um, <laughs> Kanji, because we are finishing out the show. From Appalachian Zen, Steve Kanji Rule. Finally, I gave up and let go. The arrow streaked to the target, and I realized every moment is the decisive moment. Presence is an unbroken series of present moments. The sleep seamless now. Its alertness to presence, and presence are gifts. But I don't open these gifts. I open to them. Sit on the zafu. Meditate each day. Face the white wall. Inhale the belly into the horror. Exhale. Watch that. Watch images, notions, memories arise in consciousness and evaporate. Back to silence. Back to the breathing silence. Thank you, Steve Kanjirul, for being back on 1111 Talk Radio. Until next week, I am Simran. In love, of love, with love, and as love. Be well.